For an archive of other sermons and course content, please visit fpcgulfport.org. Throughout history, there have been a number of revivals when God's people have increased in size, health, and ministry. And in every single case, these revivals involved a renewed emphasis on God's Word. In today's study of 2 Kings 23, we'll see that one of the most famous revivals in history came about after the rediscovery of God's Word during the reign of King Josiah. In 1911, the world's largest cruise ship, which you know is the Titanic, hit an iceberg and it sank in the North Atlantic. Now, a question a lot of people have when you hear the story of the Titanic is you go, all right, all right, all right. So you have this huge giant ship that hits an even larger iceberg. How come no one spotted this thing, even at night? How come there was no idea what it was they were about to encounter before they encountered it? How come no one saw or warned about this massive ship-sinking danger that they were aimed straight towards? Did anyone warn the captain? The answer is yes. There had been up to nine different warnings about icebergs in the very area in which they were traveling. Not only that, but the ship had lookouts. One of them was a guy named Frederick Fleet. Frederick Fleet radioed up, and he said, iceberg ahead. However, however, combination of hubris and pride and sin and human error doomed the ship. You see, it's a misnomer to think that something as big as an iceberg can escape everyone's notice. It really can't. You know, in general, the things that doom boats, the things that doom cultures, the things that doom nations. They're not invisible if you're paying attention. They're usually seen. The problem is that they're not always responded to by those who are in charge. In a sense, that's the sad, repeated history of Israel. See, if you read the history of Israel's kings and people, if you read through the books of Kings and Chronicles, they're filled with prophets. And you know what the prophets would shout out from the top of their lungs? They'd shout out this, iceberg ahead. They'd shout out a warning. They'd say, something is coming. Something is on the radar. Something is right in front of us. And if we continue the way we're going, if our trajectory does not change, we're doomed. This was the job of the prophets. They filled the ears of the kings and anyone who would listen with warnings about what was to happen for the kings and the leaders and the people to change course, to avoid the outcome that the prophets were warning them about. However, However, as you see when you read the books of Kings and Chronicles, what you see is that it was hubris and sin and pride and human error and all of the above and more that kept, kept the kings, kept the nation on a collision course with God's wrath, despite ample warnings uh, to allow them to avoid it. God's prophets warned everyone about the danger. They warned them sometimes generations ahead. Sometimes with such specificity, they said, this nation, this king is going to rise up and take us down if we don't take action. And it might be decades before it actually happened. God was so kind. He sent them prophets. And not only did he send them prophets, but he sent them prophets years in advance. And these prophets, these men of God, had an unbroken string of accuracy, assuming they'd actually been sent by God and not just raised up by the hearts and will of the people. Those who have been sent by God had an unbroken string of being accurate about that which they prophesied about. However, the kings and the people did this. They covered their ears, they closed their eyes, and they said, full speed ahead. How'd that turn out? Well, you remember the cyclical nature of how things worked. 
It started even earlier. Just go back to the book of Judges and you can see how it works. There's a cyclical nature. The leaders, these goofs, would say full speed ahead and the people would just continue with their apostasy and their declension. And then they'd have some calamity and judgment would befall them. They'd go, oh my, what do we do? And then they'd repent and they'd turn to God and for a season things would go well. But then what would happen? Hubris, sin, pride, human error, all the above and more would kick in and the people would turn yet again. This would happen time and time again. Now, if you look at the books of the Kings and Chronicles, what you'll find is that in the divided kingdom up to the north and in Israel, there were no good kings. There were no good kings. In the south, in Judah, there were a few. Not many, but there were a few. And in today's text, we're encountering one of them, this man named Josiah. As you recall, Josiah was the son of Amon, who I mentioned earlier, who was a bad king. And Amon was the son of Manasseh, who was just as bad, maybe worse in some capacities. The stock that Josiah came from was not especially strong. And yet, God, through God's own volition, had done something in this man's heart. That even as a young man, young men pay attention, even as a young man, God had sown the seeds of righteousness in him. And that he knew right from wrong, and he did that which was right, even as a young and experienced leader. And one of the things he knew that we got to change, one of the things he knew we got to change is he looked at the temple and he said, this place has fallen apart. The guys before me, they spent their money on parties and revelry and all sorts of other stuff. Meanwhile, the house of God is falling down around us. And so he committed to a repair project. And during that repair project in 2 Kings 22, during that repair project, they found something. They found something that you would not believe had gone unnoticed for a period of time. Because you can't believe that Israel would ever have shut this book aside, but they found the book of the law. They found the book of the law like a shocker. Oh my goodness. There's a book that tells us what we're supposed to do and about God's expectation of us. You see, they had oral tradition. They knew about Moses. They knew about Abraham, but they'd redefine those guys and what those guys did and said to be something other than that which it was. But here, when they were repairing the temple, they came across the book of the law, and the king says, you know what? Read it to me. And as it was read to him, the king's heart was just convicted, and he understood the gravity of their situation. And he understood that the declension and the disrepair that everything had fallen into was just the tip of that iceberg, that what was coming was going to be far worse. And so he committed himself, he committed his reign, he committed his rule to revival, to reformation. And that's what we're going to see in today's study. All right, let's return to verses 1 and 2, and then we'll work our way through as time allows. Verse 1. Now the king sent them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah, with all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is a lot. The priests and the prophets and all the people, both the small and the great. And then, then he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord. Revival. You know, when Christians look at our own modern age, sometimes we look at the broader church. But certainly when we look at the sin and depravity in our culture, when we look at the spiritual icebergs, many of which we've just already struck, we long for revival. That's the song that goes back decades, maybe even centuries. You know, Lord, revive us again, as the famous hymn goes. Do you want to see revival in your generation? Someone said yes. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Do you want to see revival? Young people, like me, you know, us young people. Don't we want to see revival? 
Yes, we don't want to see things continue to go the way that they were going, but that requires us to do something different than what has been done in the past. In our own day, we're watching a society crumble to its knees. In our own day, we're seeing things in our culture, and sometimes even in places with crosses out front that would make the Philistines blush. We are seeing things that anger the heart of God, but we don't recognize them for what they are. At least we don't acknowledge them for what they are, even though we might recognize it. In verses 1 and 2, King Josiah looked around, and he was looking at the religious culture of his day, right? This is Israel. There's a temple. There's Israelites. They had the accoutrements. They had the priests. They had Passover and these different things. They had this stuff, and yet it was all hollowed out. It was all hollowed out. And so he knew what has to happen. He reads the word of the law. He reads the book of the law. He says, what do I need to do next? He says, well, I need to put the same words that have convicted my heart into the ears of the people because they haven't heard it for quite some time. Josiah knew that for revival to recur, the people need to be reacquainted with this, with God's word. There is never, mark this down, there has never, ever, ever been an enduring revival in the history of the church, in the history of the world that was not yoked to the preaching and teaching of God's word. And it won't be any different in the future. There's never, ever been a revival, an authentic, spirit-filled revival that was not yoked to the preaching and teaching of the word. And what we see is that Josiah knew that. And so what did he do? He ripped his clothes in the previous chapters. He was convicted of heart. And then the first thing he does is say, I'm going to bring the word to the people. Because any revival reform that I know we need to undergo, it has to be married up to the preaching and teaching of Scripture. You know, if it's going to be the case in our own age, if you want to see revival, again, it's going to be contingent upon this going out into the church, going out into the culture. That's where revival will be. That's where we'll begin, through the preaching and teaching of God's Word, which is what we see in the first two verses. All right, let's look at what happened next in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3. Then the king stood by a pillar, and he made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart, with all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant that were written in the book. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, the priests of the second order, the doorkeepers, then to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the articles that were made for Baal. You see how depraved they were? At this point, in the temple made to God, there were now accoutrements and articles that were devoted to Baal. We see uh, he took out of the temple of the Lord all their articles that were made for Baal and for Asher and for all the hosts of heaven. There was a lot of this. And then he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron, and he carried their ashes to Bethel. All right, let's recap these first four verses. In verses 1 and 2, King Josiah read the book of the law before the people. Now, in verses 3 and 4, the people respond. They're convicted as well. And so they make a covenant, or they enter into this covenant. They say, we're going to do what we should have been doing all along. We're going to stand on the book of the law. We're going to stand on the promises made by our forefathers. We're going to double down on them, and we're going to keep them. You see, sometimes people have such good intentions, such good intentions, even in religious circles. Of course, they wouldn't keep it for terribly long, but they had good intentions right here. So they entered into this covenant. Now, in order for this covenant to have any teeth, If they have this idea that, okay, we're going to start flying right, we're going to do the things that we should have been doing all along, 
They said, well, where should we start? And Josiah, he knew where to start. He knew where to start. He says, well, how about the temple? How about, I don't know, the place that is committed to the worship of God? Let's start there. Let's clean that up. And so they go in and they find all these articles and accoutrements to Baal, to Asherah, and then to all the starry host of heaven. In other words, everything that they had as a god, they brought these trinkets, these baubles, these shiny things into the temple. And Josiah says, no more. Out with all of them. Not only are we going to take them out, but once we take them out, you know what we're going to do? We're going to burn them. We are going to burn them. You know, I once counseled a man who was into pornography. In the course of coming in contact with Scripture, he felt convicted of this sin. And so he responded to that conviction by taking the stash of that which he had and throwing it in the trash. Unfortunately, you know what he did the very next day? He went and retrieved it. Because the spirit can be willing and the flesh can be weak. He hadn't really gotten rid of the temptation, he just moved it. Well, here's the thing. Burning something, which is what Josiah did with the idols in the temple, burning something removes the possibility of it showing back up. Sometimes if there's things that are tempting us, it's not simply a matter of just moving into a place that's a little further out of arm's reach. Sometimes you just got to burn it down. Sometimes you got to eliminate that which is tempting to you. And that's what Josiah did. He said, no one again, never again is anyone going to bow before these particular idols here on the ground. Burn them. All right, let's see what he did next as we look at verses 5 through 9. Verse 5. Then he removed the idolatrous priests. It wasn't just the objects, it was individuals. Then he removed the idolatrous priests whom the king of Judah had ordained to burn incense on the high places in the cities of Judah and in the places all around Jerusalem. They would do this everywhere, but especially these high places. And the kings, even some of the good kings, were reluctant to take down these high places. So he removes the idolatrous priests that were ordained to burn incense on the high places in Judah and around Jerusalem. All those who burn incense to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, to the constellations, and to all the hosts of heaven. Then he brought out the wooden image from the house of the Lord to the brook Kidron outside Jerusalem, and he burned it at the brook Kidron. He ground it in ashes, and he threw the ashes on the graves of the common people. That's interesting. We'll get to that in a minute. Then he tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons that were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the wooden image. And he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah, and he defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense. From Jeba, Geba to Beersheba, he broke down the high places of the gates, where at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were to the left of the city gate. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brethren. All right, let's, let's stop there. Any form of reformation, be it back then, be it right now, Any form of reformation has to have at least two objects. The first is the practices, and the second is the people. You can't fix one out of the two and have things work out. One out of two won't cut it. Both the practices and the hearts of the people, especially in this case the priesthood, the ones who are positioned to lead others, needed to be changed. You either got to rotate the people out or you got to sanctify them to the hilt. But one way or another, you got to fix the practices and the people. This is true throughout church history. It was true in the Protestant Reformation as well. 
But that said, in verses 5 through 9, King Josiah began to reform a boat. You see in verses 5 through 9, he works through the practices, he gets rid of the idols, and he also focuses on the hearts of those especially that were entrusted with leadership. And as you read these verses, you can see that the way he went about it was just strong and dramatic. Josiah was not a wallflower. He didn't just take the things out and just kind of heave them over the, you know, the side of the fence or put them on a cart and send it to the pagan nations. Rather, he says, all right, gather around. We're going to have an old-fashioned bonfire. And he burns this stuff to the ground. He didn't just burn the stuff to the ground, but then once he had ashes, you'd think that'd be enough. All right, it's all burned. All right, everybody, I guess we can go home. It's all burned there. He didn't settle with that. He says, we're going to do something to the ashes as well. We need to defile the ashes. The idols have been burnt into powder, but then we're going to defile the powder. So he takes the powder and he does what? He throws it onto the graves of what Scripture says is the common people. Now, why do that? Why do that? Isn't that defiling to the graves? Well, not so much. It was defiling to the idols. It's even as bad as the Jews had gotten to this point. They still had this idea of that which is clean, that which is unclean, and dead bodies are unclean. You take, you take this powder of these idols and you throw it upon the graves. That defiles it to the nth degree. It's similar. You remember when we studied Exodus? Moses comes down, he comes across the gold calf, and he, of course, he's irate, and so they pulverize the gold calf just into powder, Scripture says, just into powder. They just pulverize this thing. But what did he do next? Remember, he put it in the water, and he made the people drink it, because there was nothing more defiling to the former idol than to pass through the digestive system of the people who had been worshiping it. Defiling that which people had given religious significance to, left them with the impression that it had no significance at all. And so that's why he did it. All right, let's look at verses 10 through 14. And then he defiled, which is a word that comes up multiple times there, he defiled Topath, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire to Molech. Then he removed the horses that the king of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Malak, the officer who was in the court, and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. The altars that were on the roof, the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, the king broke them down and pulverized them there, and he threw their dust into the brook Kidron. Then the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem, that were on the south of the Mount of Corruption. That's quite the place. The Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, for Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, and for Milcom, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he broke in pieces the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images, and he filled their places with the bones of men. King Josiah was not messing around. He took revival seriously. There were no half measures in obedience. There's no half measures in doing that which God would have us do. And Josiah, undoubtedly, he had character flaws. We all do. But one of his strengths was that he was a virtuous man who was committed to doing that which is right. And that's a good virtue to have. He's committed to doing that which is right. In fact, you could see that he was zealous Right? This is a good word. Sometimes we think that's a bad word. No, it's not. It's a good word. He was zealous for God's kingdom. And you see that by his destruction of the pagan altars. He went out of his way to defile them, as we've just seen, to show utter contempt and rejection for the false gods that the people had been worshiping. 
So he burns the wood, he pulverizes the stone, he leaves these things in such a condition that they could never, ever be reassembled at some point in the future. You know, as a Christian, you have to learn to treat that which tempts you similarly. There's things that are tempting you that you may not be nearly as committed to eradicating. And so it hangs on. And it tempts you tomorrow or next week. And then you give in. And then you have that moment of self-loathing where you say, why did I do that? Well, here's part of the reason you did it, because you left that which tempted you in a place to tempt you again. If you make peace with that which tempts you, then don't be surprised when it does so. Josiah wasn't going to let the people be tempted on his watch. He says, I know the people. He says, I know my own heart. I know Solomon's heart. Solomon at one point had walked rightly, and then he'd been deceived. He says, I know the whole lot of us are prone to err, prone to sinning. And in order to put a safeguards around our hearts, we've got to get rid of this stuff. We've got to get rid of this stuff. Again, that's good and safe practice. If there's things that are tempting you, take action to get rid of it. What did Jesus say? He says if your right hand should cause you to sin, lop it off. If your eye is causing you to sin, pluck it out. Now, did he want us to go through life as a bunch of eyeless, handless freaks? No, but what he wanted was for you to take it seriously and say there's things in my life that got to go. I'd rather enter into heaven with no eyes and no hands, but enter into heaven as a righteous man rather than be consigned to hell because I keep giving in to that which I ought not. You and I are called to remove from us that which is compelling or tempting us to do that which is wrong, and that's what we see here. He removed temptation as forcibly as he could. Now let's stop for a second and consider a question. When you read how zealous he was in 2 Kings 23, do you think, at a human level, do you think he went too far? Do you think he got just worked up and he just needed to you know, chill out here? Well, again, you know the answer. The answer is no. But it wasn't just he in Scripture who acted this way. Christ himself, who was as gentle as they come, was also zealous for the house of the Lord, was also zealous for the glory of God, was also zealous for what it means to worship God apart from false and pagan practices. In John 2, you remember the time Jesus goes to the temple, goes to the temple at Passover. Do you remember what he saw? Do you remember what he did? On John 2, we read these words. And Christ found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, it seems like something Josiah would have done. When he made a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep, with the ox, and he poured out the money changers' money, and he overturned the tables, and then he said to those who sold the doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered what was written. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. I think Jesus and Josiah would have gotten along just fine. I think they shared a common heart for the glory of God, for the reverence of worship. I think they were offended by the same thing, which is the transgression of the pagan into that which is holy. And I think there was no half measures in their response. Let me ask you another question. In your own lifetime, in your own lifetime, and some of us that's been a longer swath of time than for others, but in your own lifetime, have you seen the world become more like the church 
or the church become more like the world? What would Josiah's reaction be to that? You know, some of the worst horrors of Josiah's day, some of the very worst things, are still found in ours. Some of the very worst things they were doing in his culture, we are doing in ours, and we're calling them good. At least some are, even in some parts of the visible body of Christ. In verse 10 of today's passage, Josiah halted the pagan, evil, wicked, terrible practice of infanticide. Verse 10 says this, He defiled Topath, which is in the valley of the son of Heman, that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire to Molech. People were giving their children, giving their infants, giving their babies to this pagan practice by which they would pass through the fire and perish. In Josiah's day, children were sacrificed at Topath to the pagan god Molech at least until Josiah came and put a stop to it and burned down these, these shrines and his own altars. Well, in our day, we don't have Moloch, so to speak. In our day, we don't have Moloch, the pagan god per se. He might be gone, but abortion mills remain, which are functionally about the same thing. The destruction of that which is made in God's image, the most precious tiny souls amongst us offered into the gaping maw of paganism. Call it mullet, call it abortion. The evils of the Old Testament, they're not gone. They're just redefined. They're just named something different. It's semantics. And so what do we need in our day? Well, we need the same thing they need in their day. Good and godly men and women to stand up, stand on the covenant, and do that which is right. All right, as we're running a little low on time, let me... We look to wrap things up. At the outset of today's study, we noted that Judah, which again was the southern kingdom, but Judah had a number of, of comparatively good kings over the years. A number of comparatively good kings. However, you know what's frustrating when you read about even some of these good kings is that they were selective. If you find them throughout the books of kings, if you read about the kings, even the good ones, you'll notice this, that many of them would say that they followed, they did the right thing, they did what God would have them do. But then there'd be this epitaph attached to the end of almost every one of their descriptions. And it would say this, but they did not take down the high places. It would say, such and such a king, he did that which is good, he did which was right, God smiled on his reign, and yet, and yet, the one thing, the one thing they didn't do was they didn't take down the high places. They reigned with half measures. They did that which was right mostly but they were willing to accommodate that which was wrong. They were selective. But then Josiah came to the throne, and he did what other individuals, what other even good kings had been unwilling to do. He destroyed the high places, which is what we've seen in today's text. Let me ask you a question as we look to close. As a believer, what is your high place? I trust that broadly speaking in this house, you're in church this morning, I trust that you're trying to do that which is right. I trust that by and large in our midst, we're trying to live good and godly and righteous ways. And yet, with that said, the question remains, like Israel, what is your high place that you're leaving untouched? That you're allowing to stand even as you deal with some other issues? What is your high place? What sin, what appetite, what attitude have you been unwilling to crucify? 
Earlier this morning, I mentioned the sin of pornography. Statistically speaking, there are those within the sound of my voice who may be trying hard in some areas of their lives and yet are allowing this high place to stand. Is that you? Well, if it is your high place, then burn it down. Don't just take it to the trash. Burn it down. Go home, take action, get rid of that which is poisoning your heart and your soul and possibly your relationships. For others this morning, our high place may be different. It might not be that. It could be that and something else on top of it. Whatever our high place is, we are to take action. For some of us, maybe it's our speech patterns. It's the way we talk to people. It's the things that come out of our mouth. For some of us, maybe it's our greed, our keep chasing after more. For some of us, it's our pride or our narcissism or our hardened heart that hates others. For some, it's the sin of racism. For some of us, it's a dislike for people who are different than ourselves. Maybe that's the vile scarlet blot on our testimony. Maybe that's the high place that needs to go down. Whatever the case is, if God loves you, if God loves you, he's not going to let you keep perpetuating, keep perpetrating any sort of attitude or appetite or affection that is at odds with the testimony and ministry of his son. But here's the thing, you already know that. The people of the Old Testament, they knew that God expected better of them. The kings of the Old Testament, I think they knew that God wanted them to lead in good, godly ways. You know, even when the book of the law had been hidden for decades, even the worst king still had the moral law written on his heart. Sometimes we know that which we ought to do. The problem is the will to do it. The problem is the will to do it. The kings of Judah knew, even the good kings knew, that God wanted them to take down these high places. But they lacked the will, and so the nation continued to be defiled. This morning, what is your high place? This morning, what is that that needs to go? This morning, what sin needs to be crucified? Whatever it is, name it and then deal with it this week. Let's pray. Join Dr. Toby Holt and Dr. Dominic Aquila for a tour of Israel in February of 2024. For more information, visit fpcgulfport.org.